Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 333, The Conquest of England. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Andrea, Chris, and Jamie for signing up already. England in 1013 was a kingdom begging to be conquered. Decades of bad decisions had eroded its foundations, and now it sat as a mere shadow of its former glory. It had none of the military prowess that had been established by King Athelstan, none of the political stability that was enjoyed by King Edgar, and none of the smart planning created by King Alfred. So now, rather than being a focal point of European politics and a well-governed island fortress, this new England was decadent, weak, and dangerously vulnerable. And I should point out here that there are some revisionists who argue that Athelred was actually a pretty good king. And these revisionists tend to be mostly made up of dedicated history buffs, not trained historians. But they are rather prolific, and so you might run across their arguments from time to time. And their views generally hinge on the fact that Athelred's entries in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle were written during the time of a rival dynasty. And that's true. And as such, it's an important fact to understand about the Chronicle during this era. But there's an important difference between being critical of sources and simply being a contrarian. And the truth is that the Chronicle is not the only document we have for the Age of Athelred. And all signs, including accounts that were written during Athelred's own lifetime, indicate that this era of English history was rotten to the core, and at the center of it were the nobles and King Athelred himself. And actually, in the early years of the 11th century, it looks like even Athelred was coming to realize that, because his moves to hold on to power were starting to look desperate. You might remember Uhtred of Bamburgh. He was the son of the local High Reeve who was granted the eldermancy of a unified Northumbria. And that's extraordinary because there hadn't been a unified Northumbria for a very long time. And by becoming the elderman of that territory, suddenly Uhtred became one of the most powerful men in all of England. But his path to that title had been questionable at best. Half of his new dominion had only recently been under the command of Elderman Alfhelm, the brother of Wolfert Spot, and one of the most powerful figures in the English halls of power. But now... It was his, because the king's top counselor, Edric Streona, had ambushed and killed Alfhelm. And shortly thereafter, nearly all of Alfhelm's family joined him in the grave. And it was this man's titles, along with the titles of Uhtred's still-living father, that King Athelred had conferred upon him. Now, looking at the facts, it seems rather obvious that Athelred didn't feel like he could trust Alfhelm's dynasty. Or at least, he felt like Edric could do more for him than Alfhelm could. Furthermore, he must have felt like he could trust Uhtred. I mean, why else would he place an incredible amount of power in the hands of this young minor northern thane, and thus transform him into one of the top eldermen in England? But then something interesting happens. The king went one step farther. Athelred also gave Uhtred one of his daughters in marriage, making this young elderman the son-in-law to the crown. 
Now, it's hard to convey exactly how extreme this move was for medieval politics. I mean, it's really bonkers. As you might remember, traditionally, the king's daughters and even his sisters would be married off to politically powerful European figures, all as an important piece to the political alliances and trade deals that made the region work. But here we have the king giving his daughter to a man who was just the son of a thane only five minutes ago, and what power he did have now was due entirely to the king's own largesse. And yet, despite that, the king apparently still felt the need to bolster his hold over Uhtred. And showing a tremendous amount of insecurity, he used one of the greatest diplomatic moves he had to strengthen that bond with this low-ranked underling. And that's just one example of the king's political and strategic weakness. We can also see it in how he dealt with Edric. Edric, like Uhtred, was a political nobody before Athelred personally elevated him. Previously, he was just a minor regional thane, but then Athelred got involved. And it wasn't necessarily the wrong thing to do. For example, personally elevating otherwise minor but loyal nobles was a strategy that had been used by Alfred the Great following the ouster of Guthrum. You'll remember that he stacked the Witan with nobles that he himself selected. And that move was strategically brilliant because it allowed Alfred to have a tremendous amount of power over the Witan because nearly every member of it personally owed their power to Alfred and nobody else. But when Athelred did this, it seems like it had the opposite effect. Athelred repeatedly treated the nobles that he elevated as if he owed them, not the other way around. And so, just like with Uhtred, Athelred seemed like he was insecure in Edric Strayona's loyalty. And he decided to fix that by marrying one of his daughters to Edric. So now two of the king's most powerful diplomatic moves, marriages with his daughters, were now locked up with two minor men that the king himself had elevated and who were operating within his own kingdom, and thus his own subjects. Like I said, extraordinary. And I find Athelred's obsession with pleasing Edric particularly fascinating because if anyone needed the king's favor, it was Edric. Not only was he a relative nobody, but he had left a raft of noble bodies in his wake through his rise to power. Almost the entirety of the Midlands Wolf dynasty had been wiped out because of him. And that meant that anyone who was allied or friendly with the Wolf dynasty was likely to be rather unhappy about Edric. And so if anyone was out on the raggedy edge and in need of royal support, it was him. And yet here we have the king trying to buy Edric's friendship in every way that he could think of. Though, of course, because this was King Athelred, his actions were also erratic and inconsistent. Because even though Edric's path to the Eldermans he ran through the corpses of the Wolf Dynasty, and even though it's quite clear that there was a significant blood feud there, and one that Athelred had supported Edric's side on, not all of the Wolf Dynasty was wiped out. And in particular, two thanes from that dynasty, the noblemen Morcar and Sigafirth, were still serving in the king's court. And they were apparently still favored enough by the king that he gave Morcar some lands in 1012. Which is pretty strange when you've orchestrated the downfall of the rest of that family, you know? 
And if you are one of his hapless subjects, you might hope that this was all some sort of elaborate 3D chess game that the king was playing that was leading the kingdom to, I don't know, something. But when viewed from above, these were clearly the actions of an ineffective king who was flailing in an attempt to secure the loyalty of anyone who is willing to be bribed. And it was getting so bad during this period that even Athelred's own family was starting to unravel. His three eldest sons, Athelstan, Edmund, and Edred, were all old enough to be witnessing charters by 1012. We know this because they began to appear in them. And so it's likely that their educations had now advanced from being taught the basics of rule to being groomed for it directly through experience. And as they were all likely in their 20s by this point, they'd already learned a great deal about what it meant to be an English noble. But it was Athelred's second son, Edmund, who appears to have had a particular aptitude for it. We're told that on one particular day, Edmund gathered up his retinue and he rode to the religious community at Holcomb in Devonshire. And once he got there, he took it. Yeah, he just took it. He basically rode up to the holy men and said, I love what you've done with this place. That's a fantastic little brook you have there. So, uh, yeah, I think I'll take it. That brook, those fields, those buildings over there, even you monks, you're all mine now. So if you could just wrap this up for me or something, that would be great. And faced with the Atheling's demands, the community at Holcomb, quote, did not dare refuse him, end quote. And I get it, right? Not only was he a prince, but Edmund was almost certainly accompanied by his armed guard. And when you're getting mugged, especially when you're just some poor monk who'd spent the last 10 years perfecting a mead recipe rather than training at the John Wick School for Vengeance, well, you're probably not going to put up that much of a fight. But at the same time, they likely knew that Edmund wasn't actually the king's favorite son. That honor was held by his eldest, Athelstan. And while the king might be able to get away with looting religious lands, that ability didn't necessarily extend down to a small army of children. So the monks stalled. And they said that they didn't want to refuse Edmund's demands, but those lands weren't strictly theirs to give either. Instead, for the transfer to be legal, they needed the permission of the king and the bishop. So, the matter was taken before the king. And while Edmund wasn't his favorite, King Athelred still wanted to keep him happy. Not only that, but, you know, fair play to Edmund, he really was showing a keen interest in the family business here. But at the same time, those lands might be needed by the crown later so the king didn't want to just hand them over permanently. So instead, he told Edmund that he could have the lands, along with all the fixtures and all the people living on the land, but only for as long as he lived. After he died, the property would revert. Oh, and also, he'd have to pay for the lands. In fact, he'd have to pay a whopping sum of 20 quid. Which, of course, Edmund happily forked over, probably out of his back pocket. But what this little vignette tells us is a couple things. First, Edmund clearly took after his father. It's hard to read this and not get the impression that Edmund was a particularly aggressive and audacious atheling, albeit one who probably wasn't all that popular among the clergy. But it also gives us another example of how Athelred was attempting to maintain the loyalty of people who were close to him and should have already been loyal to him, by giving them lands and titles that he had to steal from other subjects of his 
who were now likely to be not all that loyal. And keep in mind that this, like the previous stories I mentioned in this episode, aren't from Scandinavian propaganda that was written years later. Many of these details come directly from those old boring land charters and other supporting documents that I harp on about. Meaning that even contemporary documents show England as deeply fractured and mismanaged. Now let's contrast that with Denmark. In many ways, England and Denmark were similar. While popular culture heavily focuses on the individuals who went to Viking, the reality is that the Danish economy was run on farming, fishing, and trade. Going a Viking might provide windfalls for the Vikingers, but it wasn't a driving force for the economy. And with very few exceptions, even those who went a Viking didn't do it full-time. Generally, raiding and pillaging was a side gig, and the reality is that Denmark, like most of Europe, was an agrarian society with almost all the population living in farming communities. And actually, a lot of what was happening in Denmark reminds me a great deal of the early Anglo-Saxon heptarchy. For example, Denmark was only very recently Christian, having converted a few generations earlier. And as such, the major hubs of Christian activity tended to be the urban areas, while the rural areas still hung on to the old ways, simply mixing Christianity into their existing pantheons. Denmark was also light on literacy, and much of the local writing that survives comes in the form of runic inscriptions. Furthermore, the production of local currency was also in its infancy, and when we do find large numbers of coins produced during this period, they tend to come from regions outside of Denmark. But the thing that reminds me the most of the old heptarchy is their political structure. Denmark during this period was decentralized and incredibly politically complex. And the decentralization might surprise you, given what we've covered regarding King Swain Forkbeard and King Harold Bluetooth. Because when you hear king, you tend to think of a monarchy similar to England under the House of Wessex. You know, with a family that holds the exclusive right to rule through blood and passes it down through primogeniture. But it's probably more helpful to think of Denmark as operating like the old heptarchy, with the king of Denmark ruling as more of an overking, or a Bretwalda of sorts. A Danewalda. Basically, an overlord who ruled over small, petty kings through military force or charismatic power or wealth or political influence or some other manner. And actually, the governance of this era is so complicated and murky that even the relative power of titles tended to shift. But a system like this was durable in its own way, and it was quick to adapt. Because by having the king selected through a complex web of power rather than through birthright, it ensured that the strongest and most politically connected individuals would tend to rise to the top. And that's important for us to understand, because Harold Bluetooth, Swain Forkbeard, and Canute have become household names over the centuries. But during their time, this dynasty was relatively new in the halls of Danish power. They had spent the better part of half a century acquiring influence and advancing their position. So they weren't an entrenched power structure. These were the dynamic upstarts looking to make their mark, and they often made it at the point of a sword. But while this system of government did tend to elevate the most ambitious and well-connected dynasties, it also came with significant drawbacks. By having such a cutthroat form of succession, it meant that virtually every time Swain's dynasty gained power, they had to take it from others. Others who generally didn't give it up willingly. 
So over the last 50 or so years, this dynasty had been embroiled in a series of power plays and outright conquests, which meant that the nobles who served beneath them were people whose families could recall a time when it wasn't like this. And when other dynasties, perhaps even their dynasties, had ruled. But more than that, by having a policy of the throne going to the person strong enough to hold it, it also created an incentive for conflict within the ruling dynasty itself. And that was something that Swain's family was all too familiar with. In fact, Swain's own rise to power came as the result of an intra-dynastic fight. A fight between father and son. Between Swain and his dad, King Harold Bluetooth. Now, Adam of Bremen blamed this conflict and the resulting civil war on Bluetooth's conversion to Christianity, and he claimed that Swain was so hostile to Christianity that he launched a war against his own father. But a closer look at the evidence appears to indicate that Swain wasn't opposed to Christianity. It was just he didn't accept Adam's particular branch, which Adam took rather personally and then cast him as a villain in his account. But when we look at what was actually happening in the royal family, and how issues of burials and observances were dealt with, it doesn't appear that Christianity was resisted. Instead, it seems to have been adopted by the ruling class. In fact, Swain's own children appear to have been Christian, and likely had attendant priests in their households. So if religion did play a role in the civil war that was waged between Swain and Bluetooth, it was likely a tertiary role. For example, it might have caused some of Bluetooth's supporters to turn away from him, perhaps some of the more rural supporters who had resisted the conversion. And the actual cause of the Civil War appears to have been something else. Because importantly, other accounts, including those that were written during the time of Swain's son, Canute, point to a different cause than Christianity for this Civil War. They characterize the Civil War as the result of an internal struggle between a charismatic young son who is rising in prominence and looking for more power, and his envious father who bitterly resented him for it. And given the structure of Denmark in the 10th and 11th centuries, I find that entirely plausible. And that conflict, which dragged the kingdom into civil war that ended with Bluetooth's exile and death, was so troubling to the Danes that later writers continued to speak about it with tones of horror and loss. And it was into this context that Canute was born. According to Thietmar of Merseburg, Canute was born to Swain and the sister of King Boleslav, the first king of Poland. And given the nature of Scandinavian life during this period, it's not clear how exclusive their relationship was. But growing up, Canute appears to have had one brother, Harold, and at least one full-blooded sister, Estreth, as well as a half-sister, Githa. In addition, there might have been one other full-blooded sister, Sanslav, which is an odd name, but it might have been a mangled spelling of a name that's rather common amongst the Polish nobility. And then at some point, King Swain cast out Knut's mother, and she returned to Poland. But Knut and Harold stayed in Denmark, and they were either raised in their father's court or they are sent out to be fostered in the courts of influential noblemen. Then, when Canute was a child, his father ended up embroiled in another civil war, this time with his ally, Olaf Tryggvason, who sought to claim the throne of Norway from his Danish overking. And in the end, Olaf Tryggvason would lose his life, thus confirming for all to see that King Swain Forkbeard was the most powerful king in Scandinavia. 
So this was the environment in which Canute was raised. He came from a family that had to fight and struggle for what they had, sometimes through rather nasty means. And this family had also learned how damaging internal struggles could be and how necessary it was to have and maintain the loyalty of your subordinates. And the contemporary writing that came out of Canute's era suggests that this family history of infighting and instability stuck in his mind and played a huge role in shaping his worldview. Canute knew that power was only as solid as those who supported him, and their loyalty was not something to take for granted. These were facts of rule that Canute and his father Swain had learned the hard way. They knew them intrinsically. And so did Athelred and Edmund. But what the two dynasties had done with that knowledge turned out to be quite different. And as a result, England was weak. It had suffered numerous military losses, it paid a series of punishing Danegelds, and those in charge were in a near constant state of infighting. However, despite all those problems, it was still a wealthy kingdom. Their lands were fertile, their trading harbors were bustling, and their people were hardworking. There was a lot of money to be made there, or taken. So of course Swain took an interest. But this time was different for him. While he was a Viking raider, he was also a king. And one of the most enduring aspects of monarchy is the fact that kings tend to like to acquire new lands especially when they have two ambitious young princes who are itching to make their own mark on the world. And I doubt that Swain wanted to find himself in the same position as his father, trying to counter the rising ambitions of his young, energetic son. And into this dynastic crisis came England, a kingdom that was so demoralized that even their own king couldn't reliably muster an army, a kingdom that had lost faith in their leadership, a kingdom that might be prepared to accept him as their king. The betrayal of Thorkell was technically a violation of the treaty with England, but in all likelihood, the true driver of Swain's conflict with England was internal Danish politics and simple economics. It probably also didn't hurt that Thorkell didn't have all the Jans Vikings with him when he defected. Many of them came back to Denmark, which meant that Swain now had large numbers of veteran crews who were looking for work and were kind of bored. So Forkbeard loaded up his ships, and he placed his son, Harold, in charge of Denmark, and he brought his other son, Canute, on board with him. Now, Canute was young, so young that Scalds commented on his youth during this invasion and spoke of how he was the youngest leader of the campaign. But his young age didn't hold him back. Like the rest of his family, he was ambitious, and he was ready to fight to make his mark on this island kingdom. In July 1013, King Swain, Canute, and most of their fleet were off the coast of Sandwich. But not all their fleet was there. There were some stragglers. So they loitered for a while, waiting. And that tells you exactly how worried they were about the English resistance. They were just parked off the coast, letting Athelred and the rest of the kingdom know that they were there and basically giving them a chance to try and get their shit together. Not that the Danes were particularly worried that that would happen. Once the last few ships arrived, the fleet sailed up the Humber and they disembarked 20 miles up the River Trent. And there, at Gainsborough in Lindsay, King Swain established his main base of operations. 
Now, this decision has resulted in an enormous amount of debate among historians. Why did Forkbeard plant his flag on the border territory between Northumbria and the Five Boroughs? Why did he skirt around the edge of East Anglia, but pointedly avoid it, even though that was their initial gathering spot? Was there some concern over East Anglian opposition, perhaps under the command of Ulfgell Snelling? Was there a concern over Thorkell's involvement, who was likely based along with his fleet at Greenwich? I don't know. By placing his army on Trent, he was functionally cutting the old Danelaw in half. So did Swain figure that the old Danelaw was the weakest link? And so therefore, that's what he should deal with first? Well, that last theory is the favorite of Stenton, but historians have any number of explanations for this enigmatic decision, and we'll never truly know what was in Swain's mind when he picked that particular spot on the map. What we do know, though, is that when Swain, Canute, and the fleet landed at Gainsborough, and they made their encampment, the people of Northumbria responded. Northumbria had a proud warrior tradition, and for the first time in generations, it was under the command of a single leader, Uhtred. And more than that, Uhtred was one of them. He was a local boy from the ancient capital city of Bambara, Ida's capital. They weren't gonna let the arrival of this Scandinavian king go unanswered. So the leading men of Northumbria gathered their companions. And at the head of their force was mighty Elderman Uhtred himself, who had only recently fought back the King of Scotland. And when this force reached Swain and his army, they immediately joined up with the Danes without any hesitation. The truth is that Northumbria had a feud with Wessex long before the King's favorite, Edric Striona, had murdered their Elderman. But let me tell you, murdering Elderman Alfhelm with the King's blessing hadn't gone unnoticed by the North. Nor had the Danegelds. Nor the Landgrabs. The North was fed the f*** up. And besides, as Northumbria was Anglo-Danish, they had a lot in common with Swain and his men. The only thing that might have been holding them back was the fact that Uhtred had married Athelred's daughter. But honestly, f*** Athelred. Uhtred was smart enough to know which way the wind was blowing, so they threw their lot in with King Swain. And then to solidify the union, it's likely that it was at this moment that young Canute married the daughter of old Elderman Alfhelm, a woman named Elfgifu of Northampton. And by doing this, they weren't just showing solidarity with the old dynasty that had been murdered by the king's favorite. Swain was also forging a dynastic claim to the old throne of Danelaw. And with that... It was done. And seeing the largest Elderman see siding with Swain's gargantuan fleet was all it took for Lindsay and the five boroughs to follow suit. And while they couldn't provide a marriage as surety for their loyalty, they could provide hostages, which they did. Without a single battle, nearly half of England had already sworn fealty to King Swain. But that was the easy part. They were in the Danelaw the region that was already predisposed to side with them. The rest of England wouldn't be so easy. It was also pretty far away, and carrying all these weapons and armor across the English countryside could get tiring. But no worries. Swain's new English subjects had horses, which he helped himself to. And now horsed, he could strike the rest of England. However, there still was the matter of their ships and hostages. They couldn't just bring those with them, obviously. And so he needed someone he trusted in charge of looking after them. You know, obviously along with quite a few men. 
Because if they lost their ships and their hostages, this whole thing could go tits up pretty quick. And luckily, Swain brought his son, Canute, with him. And Canute, being a newlywed, probably wasn't all that eager to leave his blushing bride. So Canute stayed in camp, and Swain struck south. Hard. As soon as he crossed into Mercia proper, Edric's territory, he began raiding. Savagely. We're told they did, quote, the greatest damage that any army could do, end quote. And as we learned during the Age of Alfred, there was a clear advantage of doing this sort of attack. This style of warfare demonstrated the weakness of the establishment, and it was also likely to terrify the local population into submission. And so they raided and burned. And it worked. Swain and his forces ravaged to such an extent that as soon as he appeared outside the walls of Oxford, they surrendered and gave him hostages to ensure their loyalty. Then he continued his march to Winchester. And as soon as his army was within sight of their walls, Winchester surrendered and gave him hostages to ensure their loyalty. In a matter of weeks, all of Northumbria, Lindsay, Mercia, and even central Wessex had come under his dominion. Pressing his advantage, King Swain moved on London to one of the major economic engines of the kingdom. But it was also where King Athelred and his court had retreated for safety. And it was the city where Swain's old vassal, Thorkell the Tall, along with his Yom Vikings, were waiting. When Swain and his forces arrived, rather than being greeted by a city eager to surrender and join their cause, they found a city heavily defended and ready for battle. But Swain and his men were experienced. And so, undeterred, they launched a battle to take the walls, and thus, the city. We're not given precise details of the tactics they used, but during the fighting, Swain sent at least a portion of his forces to ford the River Thames and approach the city from the south end. But this gambit was a disaster, and large numbers of his men drowned in the attempt. London was a quagmire for Swain's army. And that was an enormous problem, because large portions of his victory thus far had come from the speed and ferocity of their campaign. Swain couldn't afford to spend months in a protracted siege. If he did, he ran the risk of losing his hold on the territories he had already conquered. He needed to keep the English demoralized, and to do that, he had to keep moving and keep winning. So Swain gathered his army, and he ravaged his way west to Wallingford. And from there, they continued pillaging until they reached Bath. Now, for quite some time, Athelmar had been ruling as the elderman over that region. But since the rise of Edric Striona, he'd fallen out of favor. And that's not all that surprising. Athelmar had been part of Mom's faction, and as such, he represented a threat to Edric's new ruling order. And so as soon as Edric rose in power, we see Athelmar's ranking in the witness list rapidly diminish until finally he had stopped appearing at all, which was taken to mean that he'd retired. But then suddenly, as Swain's army approached, Athelmar reappeared. And once again, he was acting as the elderman of the Western Shires. Perhaps he was brought out of retirement following the unending calamity of raids. Or perhaps the leading people of Western Wessex simply sought his guidance and trusted his leadership under this current attack. Whatever it was, Elderman Athelmar, 
along with the leading thanes of the West, went to meet with King Swain. And there, at Bath, this staunch supporter of the crown, and a man who had known Athelred for pretty much his entire life, a man who was a member of King Athelred's own dynasty, went to King Swain and offered him his fealty, along with the fealty of all the territories of the West. Then he gave Swain some hostages to ensure their loyalty. King Swain had done it. Quote, the whole nation regarded him as king in all respects, end quote. Only London remained. But that was just one city, and it could only hold out for so long. So King Swain of Denmark, Norway, and England rode back to his encampment on the River Trent. And in London, Athelred had to face the fact that he had lost everything. It was only a matter of time before the city turned against him and embraced Swain. He only had one move left. His marriage to Emma of Normandy might have been political, and it might have been forced upon him by an upstart duke. But it did grant him the privilege of hospitality. So Athelred boarded Thorkell's ship, and he made a beeline for the French coast. And with that, London and all of England had fallen. The king has fled. Long live the king. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast. Thanks for listening.